0: Nathan Lyon, in the attack.
1: I know this is very frustrating for you, but I don't actually understand a lot about cricket. (laughs) So what's going on here?
0: Nathan Lyon, the goat, he's coming into bowl, his right arm off spinners. And he's just taken a wicket, that's unbelievable. Look at the turn and bounce he's getting on a first-day pitch.
1: I can't understand anything that you're saying at the moment.
0: See how the ball turned, the off-spin, it spun back into the batsman and then it took the outside edge and was caught easily by Hanscom at bat pad.
1: And it hit his leg, does that mean anything?
0: Sure, but it also hit his bat and therefore he's got to walk off, he's out. Next batsman in.
1: As our resident cricket enthusiast in the office, our Deputy Political Editor Michael Quartz has very kindly agreed to explain the rules of cricket to me, although I have to say he has his work cut out for him.
0: And Australia got two down for 52. Great start.
1: And there's actually a lot more going on in cricket than just what we see on the pitch. In this episode of Business Briefing, we're going to talk about the business of cricket and the economics that underpin it. We have a new segment too, called The Future This Week. But first we'll hear from two academics who can explain how looking at other sports, like football, can actually tell us a lot about the current fight between cricketers and their governing body, Cricket Australia.
0: There's a lot of debate in Australian sport at the moment regarding player payments. Uh, We've just had the AFL and AFL Players Association agree on a new six year pay deal. Um, At the end of June this year, which is now only a few days away, the current deal between Cricket Australia and the Australian Cricketers Association expires. My name is Dr. David Bond, and I'm from the UTS Business School, and here with me to discuss this is Dr. Stephen Frawley, a senior lecturer in sport management at the UTS Business School. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, David. I think this is um quite an interesting uh, period in Australian sport at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see, given the the time uh, constraints on uh, the cricketers and their current uh, negotiations, whether we get a similar type of arrangement uh, with the um, between Cricket Australia and the Australian Cricketers Association. The interesting thing here is that the the person that was leading the AFL players. Uh, contract negotiations, Paul Marsh was uh, previously at cricket, and there's a lot of synergies between cricket and AFL, and they have in the past worked quite closely together. I think what is driving cricket is the amount of pressure from other sports, and particularly AFL, around development spend. There's one thing that the AFL has done very successfully over the last 10, even 15 years, is invest massively in grassroots development, particularly in non-traditional AFL areas. And they are leading the development push far, far ahead of any other sport. Cricket is not far behind, uh, definitely ahead of uh, sports such as rugby league, netball, etc. But they are still uh, nowhere near at that level at the AFL. And the AFL has the revenue and the money to do that. As a, rugby per, as a rugby union person they're definitely ahead of grassroots spend in our sport and, it, and it's interesting on that front that that's you see we're starting to see some of the outcomes of a lack of spend and a lack of care at that level yes you can focus on the elites but you need to get that balance yeah. right and as you are fully aware being a rugby person it doesn't take long for things to slip mm. so rugby had that beautiful period between 1998 and say 2005 where we hosted the Rugby World Cup, we got a lot of broadcast revenue, there was a lot of investment in grassroots development. We, we won a World Cup in there we, as well. That's right, there was success which can cover up a lot of poor administration but the administration of rugby for a period of time there was very good. Um, but the the point that other sports should look at for as rugby as an example is it doesn't take much to slip it's not only the national team performance, but it's also the administration, the quality of the administration and the quality of development. Yeah, too true. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit sad. <laughs> yeah,
2: Steve, thanks for joining me on this. I mean, some definitely some really interesting issues around
0: it. Thanks for your time, Dave. Thank you.
2: If you watch Michael Bevan play in a second innings of a, of a one day match. probably it's incredibly infuriating because he seems as though he's just dinking and dunking around and wasting his time, and he's been, and the you know the target is getting further and further and further away from him. But for whatever reason, he always figures out a way that in the last over he can you know there's only five or six to get and he gets them. Though so he was quite incredible at uh, essentially recognizing that frontier, the the possibility frontier of scoring. And he got there by trading off the risks in, in the most effective way.
3: So this is Stephen Stern. He's professor of data science at Bonn University, and he's in charge of the Duckworth Lewis Stern method, which is how cricketers figure out how to adjust the score when it rains. See, the rain is just starting to come down here again. At the As you, you heard before, This gives Professor Stern an interesting perspective on cricket. Rather than analyzing the game as you or I might, by simply admiring a good shot or delivery, he looks at it in terms of resources.
2: The resources that that a cricket team has to score are two dimensional. They have uh, wickets in hand and they have overs remaining. If you look at the game in these
3: terms, cricket becomes an economic problem. How do you score the most amount of runs given a limited amount of wickets and a limited amount of overs? If you score too fast, you take on a lot of risk. If you score too slowly, you won't score
2: much either. The idea of the team batting first is uh, to try and and, uh, maximize profit, if you will, uh, given that they have two uh, input resources and those resources have different costs. If they try and score more rapidly, they take greater risk team could score at 10 runs and over, but they would lose wickets so quickly that they would end up not being able to bat out their entire overs. So 10 runs and over for only 10 overs is only 100 runs. So you can get more runs than that by batting three runs and over and, not, and, and lasting all 50. And this is where
3: the Duckworth Lewis Stern method comes in. If teams only have two resources, wickets and balls, then the rain can have a massive impact on the game. If it rains in the second half of the game, the team batting second might have a lot less balls to play with, and so the system tries to adjust the score for how many
2: resources have been lost. And and a business does the same thing. They could you know use all of their uh, resources of a particular type, making product A. But if product uh, product A is only uh, ha- has a certain amount of demand for it, then they that won't necessarily maximize their profit. They have to split between uh, making all their different products depending on the the uh, individual profitability and the relative trade-offs. That is a cost-benefit analysis, and it's exactly the same uh, in a a cricket innings. The the team batting first is doing a cost-benefit analysis uh, on how to expend efficiently the two forms of resources that they have.
3: But it's not just businesses, Stern, and the teams that are making this calculation. The players may not realize it, but every time they go out to bowl or bat, they're doing the exact same thing.
0: Like ...will now be picking shingle,
2: retain the strike. Now, if you talk to some of the really good uh, 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 one-day batsmen, you can kind of get a sense that, although they probably don't know that they're doing it or wouldn't be able to speak in the language of economics, they are pretty darn good resource optimizers, and that they can find and bat along that production frontier. It's dropped it's four! It's dropped and it's four! Right. When I do my player ratings in the ba- in the Big Bash League, I rate along, essentially along the idea that the batsmen who are the best are the ones who can bat at the frontier. They are the ones who figure out how best to to score at the most efficient frontier. And of course, the the best bowlers are the ones who the ones who are more most likely to to stop the batsmen from doing that.
1: That's Professor Stephen Stern from Bond University speaking to my colleague on the Business Desk at The Conversation, Josh Nicholas.
4: This is The Future This Week in Conversation.
5: I'm Sandra Peter, Director of Sydney Business Insights.
4: I'm Kai Remo, Professor of Information Technology and Organisation at the University of Sydney Business School.
5: This is a special of our weekly podcast, The Future This Week, covering news, technology
4: and the future of business. And today we're looking at technology in sports.
5: So what happened in the future this week?
4: We are now able to use data analytics to analyze how the game is being played. There's all kinds of sensors and visual technologies to analyze the game, to provide real-time stats during the game, but also to analyze how the game is played, to improve training regimes and the competitiveness of a team.
5: And the interesting thing is that technology has not only changed the way the game is played and the way people train, but it's also changed the business of most games played today.
4: So we see this play out on three different levels. The first is team strategy. The second is the entertainment value of the sport. And the third is what it means for the players.
5: Strategically, this is a very short-lived competitive advantage in any competitive sport, because whilst in business, this sort of strategies are addressed by cooperating in sport, there can only be one winner.
4: No, you can't cooperate. That would be collusion, right? So what might be beneficial at the team level might not be beneficial at the collective level where a brand of sport might suffer, when teams try to gain an advantage over their competitors.
5: So there is real value in some of these technologies at the individual player level. In the US, for instance, we've seen Major League Baseball allowing since 2016 a a range of devices, including specially fitted sleeves, like the ones that we've seen in cricket from Crickflex in Pakistan, or microchips in players' jerseys, and we've also seen that in the National Football League in the US, and they track a player's heart rate, they track skin temperature, and a whole range of other data around player performance.
4: So the ICC has just unveiled Intel as a technology partner. They're putting little sensors on bets to analyze cricket players' stroke play. So they will gather a lot of data to know how players are doing, how well they're playing, and how their performance is.
5: So on the one hand, this could be great because we could understand how players rest and how players recover, and it could help fight off fatigue and prevent injuries during gameplay.
4: It's great for the training regime, less injuries for the players more professionalism, better skills development.
5: But there is also a very dark side to this.
4: This can be used in negotiations to measure performance and then translate that into contracts and pay.
5: So think about this. If I see that your heart rate is not going up quickly enough, I could say, well, you're really not putting a whole lot of effort into this. Conversely, if your heart rate goes up too quickly once you're in the game, I could say...
4: I'm not training hard enough. Exactly.
5: And that could really influence how...
4: We pay our players. So we see data-based KPIs for players that are based on these sorts of stats.
5: And then what happens if the data contradicts the actual performance?
4: Let's say your heart rate doesn't go up or you are too tired, but you're still scoring really, really well. So this is only the beginning of something. And while in cricket we're going to be inundated with even more stats while watching telly, the same happens behind the scenes and it's still up for grabs what the effects will be on how the game is played. And whilst we could go on on whether this is
5: on the pitch or off the pitch and what the regulations are and who are the teams who could actually afford to do this, that's all we have time for today.
4: Thanks for listening. Thanks
5: for listening.
1: We'll have more from Sandra and Kai in the future this week in the next Business Briefing. Our theme music is by Ben Sound, and this podcast is produced by myself, Jenny Henderson. I'm the business and economy editor for The Conversation, and my partner in crime, Deputy Business Editor Josh Nicholas. And if you've got some feedback on the podcast, please do leave it online. It helps others to find it.